our, uh, our Easter service series is actually called Hope Starts Here. If you've seen the flyer on our, on our Facebook or on, a, uh, I've actually said it coming through on my Facebook, scroll even, Hope Starts Here, which immediately begs the question of, of what is hope? Now, I ask that not because you've never heard the word before, or you've never used it before, we've all said it at different points in our life, but what does it mean to have hope? We need to start there, because I want to say, is it possible that you and I might use the word to mean different things? Or does hope sort of have a standard meaning across the board, irrespective of your age or your ethnicity or your religious affiliation? Well, that's the question I sort of started with this week. And of course, the, answer to, uh, the way to answer all such ponderings of profundity is obvious. It's always you conduct a Google search. And what does Dr. Google say? Well, here's the basic definition of hope according to Google. It's on the screen there for you. The basic definition is hope is to desire and consider an outcome possible to happen. Or put slightly a different way, it's to want something to be true. That's what Dr. Google says hope is. That's their essential working definition. And if you go a little bit further, if you click on the images tab to sort of you know, get a bit more deep in your research cred then you'll get something like this. You'll get a picture of a simple flower growing through a concrete crack. The cold, lifeless, lifeless concrete with the, the, the little yellow... looks like a vinca, I'm not sure. It looks like a vinca growing up through there, despite the adversity. Or maybe it's not the flower, it's the kitten suspended from a piece of rope, hanging on by a claw or two. That's hope in action. And hope in these scenarios is visually represented as that desire for an outcome, a looking forward to an improvement of some kind in the present circumstance, an active belief or a consideration that the outcome is possible despite the adversity. I'm going to gloss over for a minute that the fact that you, your idea of a desirable outcome for the cat may be completely different from my desired outcome. That's right, there's some sickos out there. I don't know. Hang in there, baby, you know. But I want you to notice that this idea of hope contains some sort of a, I want to say a wish or a maybe or a possible element to it. The way that hope is often described and used, it has this sort of, ah, oh, maybe, if only, we really hope. I mean, the likelihood of the flower going through the, the concrete, it's desirable, it's beautiful, but it's uncommon. It's nice, but it's not guaranteed. That's what makes the picture work. It's the juxtaposition of the hope against the odds that somehow speaks to us. Now, I want you to hold that sort of that in mind, that definition of hope. To one, I want you to hold it in mind, but to one side for a minute, that sort of wish element to this worldly idea of hope. I want you to hold it there because we're going to come back to it later. But before we do that, I want us to think about the variety of the circumstances or situations where hope is expressed. When is it that you have had high hopes for an outcome? Or when is it that you found hope the only thing left that you're clinging to? Because I hope that you realise, I hope you realize, hope is a common, it's common, and I think it's actually vital, it's a vital aspect of personhood. Let me explain that a little bit. In fact, um, if you've read any of Dostoevsky, he's a Russian author, he went so far as to say, to live without hope is to cease to live. That's how important he found hope. He's a guy who spent a few years in the gulags in Russia. He says to live without hope, that's to cease to live. Or many of you will be aware of Martin Luther, the theologian. Uh, he wrote something similar when he said, everything that is done in the world is done through hope. 
No merchant or tradesman would set himself to work if he did not hope to reap a benefit thereby. Now, do you hear how fundamental then, do you hear how fundamental hope is to existence? These guys are saying at least that without hope, you've got nothing and you'll do nothing. That's what they're saying. It's fundamental to existence. Do you agree with Dostoevsky? Do you agree with Luther? Luther? That hope is vital for living? Just in case you're still on the, on the fence, think about it for a minute. How, many, how often and how many varieties of situations you've expressed or felt the need for hope in your own life? Let me rattle off a few. You know, the hope as you wait for the outcome of the job interview or the, the exam result or the uni offer. The hope in the relationships, either for a new one to begin or a mending of one that is broken. The hope in the weather for the farmer that it comes at the right time for the bride that it might be clear skies on the day of her marriage. The hope in the housing market. You want prices to be high when you're selling, you want them to be low when you're buying. Hope for health in the face of sickness or an operation, whether it's for you or someone else, expressing hope for the desirable outcome. It's both reasonable and natural. Who hasn't been hoping or who hadn't been hoping for a, a breakthrough on the COVID front, hoping that our lives and livelihoods might return back to our previous understanding of normal? We hope that we've got enough in super to see us through retirement. These are the sort of things, we hope in every, every sphere of life there's hope, but it's not just in our own little personal pockets of spheres of life. We express hope in our institutions. I think we all share the hope that there would be justice, real justice seen and done through our law courts. That we would hope for fairness and transparency during elections. That we would hope uh, for political decisions made in our country to be good, right and fair. What I hope you're realising is, see I can't even go a sentence without saying it, is that hope is expressed and felt everywhere and it's always future oriented. It's always looking towards something in the future and hope seems especially pressing when the future feels uncertain. In fact, it's this kind of hope that people often express when they're asked to consider death and the hereafter. In my experience, um, a lot of people, if you, if you can get people to think about it, it's an uncomfortable subject, if you can get them to think personally about death for more than two seconds, they often say something like this, well, I hope there's an afterlife, I hope there's a heaven, and I hope I go there. I asked my grandfather this once, he was, you know, he was in his late 80s, about to have some heart valves transplanted. I mean, he was, he was an old guy already and about to go under a serious operation. I asked him, Pop, what do you think is going to happen after, you know, what do you think is going to happen in, in death? Got any idea about that? He said, Tim, I, I don't know what happens when you die. I just, I just hope I've done enough. Do you recognise that attitude? Do you understand that sort of vague notion of hope, that desire for a future unknown outcome, wanting it to be true, yet unable to find any solid anchor or foundation to secure that hope to? Do you know that? notion of hope is that your attitude when you consider your own inevitable demise regardless of whether it's going to happen in the next 20 minutes or the next 20 years are you just holding on to a wish or a desire for a favorable future outcome with no assurance and actually more importantly than that actually a more pressing question we all consider today is there a better way to both understand and anchor hope especially as it relates to death. 
That is the question I want us to think about on this Good Friday, uncomfortable as it may be, because hope is something that Christians have banged on about for years, centuries, eons, it seems, especially at Easter. We talk about the hope of the gospel or the hope of the cross. We've even titled the sermon series, Hope Starts Here. But after listening to that Bible verse or that Bible passage read out just now, you could be forgiven for feeling more than just a little confused at this point. I mean, what has this passage got to do with hope? What's this passage got to do? Why would I choose that passage to say hope starts here? I mean, because a little spoiler alert, if you don't know how this story progresses, what we heard at the end was Jesus being handed over to be crucified. And that's exactly what happens next. Oh, just before that, though, he's further mocked and brutalised, and then he's publicly executed in front of bloodthirsty mob and a sneering religious mob of elites. That's how the story progresses. There's no crack group of SAS soldiers jumping out of the shadows to save Jesus at the last minute. There's no SEAL Team 6 in this occasion, backed by a coalition of the willing to snatch Jesus from the jaws of injustice and wrongful death. It doesn't happen that way. He dies. Where's the hope in that? As Justin mentioned in his little intro, We come to this day every year and commemorate the death of Jesus at this time and we call it Good Friday? What's going on with that? Something doesn't add up. And yet in a strange kind of way, this passage is all about hope. And hope really does start here, but it's not in the way that you'd naturally expect it to. In fact, what I want to suggest is that real hope and genuine hope and solid, secure hope is revealed to the world through this Good Friday event but it's only by a process of elimination. Let's look at this section. I'll show you what I mean. Have a look what I mean. If you've got a Bible, take it out. Keep it open in Mark 14, 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible at the back. Go and grab one. Write your name in the front of it. It is now yours. I don't want you to leave here without being in possession of God's Word. So please do that if you don't have one. But let's look at this section. I want to look at it. In fact, Mark 14, 53 is where we'll begin. But just back up a few verses. We actually saw Jesus has been arrested under dubious circumstances. And what I mean by that is, well, his arrest doesn't happen in the daytime in the view of the public. It happens under the cover of night, away from the crowds and the witnesses with their iPhones ready to post. That's how it goes down. It's dubious in nature from the very beginning. But at least it seems in verse 53 that he's brought to the religious leaders and the teachers of the law. This ought to give us hope that for the mess to be straightened out, shouldn't it? I mean, maybe we're thinking here at the moment that the soldiers, they're acting like bits of mavericks. Maybe they're acting on an anonymous tip-off at the last minute. But at least now, it seems, due process will take its place. And in verse 55, it seems to give us hope that this is what will take place. Read it with me, verse 55. Jesus taken before the religious hobnobs and we read there, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence. That's good. Oh, looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. That's bad. But they couldn't find any. That's good. It's a bit of a shaky start, isn't it? It's an odd sort of way that this sort of progresses. You think that they go to the, the, the teachers of the law and the high priest. This ought to be the place where justice is seen to be done and it's a very, very shaky start. It would be good if we could be confident that religious leaders are always interested in the truth. We should be able to hope this is consistently true. But sadly here, as it is too often in our own day and age, people in powerful positions, religious leaders included, aren't always looking for evidence of the truth. 
rather evidence of what fits their preference, their selfish ambition or their predetermined narrative. That's what goes on here. So hope in the institutional power of the day, that didn't serve Jesus too well. And we've got to realise that that's not a guarantee for us either. But surely, institutional power, they can't just throw their weight around willy-nilly. They've got to have some evidence if they're going to kill him, haven't they? Ask the eyewitnesses. That's where Jesus will find the hope for justice, in this kangaroo court that we've got going on. It's in the eyewitnesses. Cue the witnesses. Verse 56. Many testified against Jesus. That's bad. But their statements didn't agree. That's good. <laughs> As you read the witness statements, they're actually, there's no consistency here. They're actually against each other. One saying this, one saying that. There's no, there's no, we're no closer to finding hope yet. All we can say with certainty from this witness statement little passage bit here is that someone's lying. That's all we can be assured of at this point. Someone's telling a porky pie and we don't know who. Maybe if they ask Jesus, he'll be able to shed some light, fix up the misunderstanding, find a way to shake hands and you know, laugh it off over a glass of wine at the local tavern. And in fact, the chief priest seems to give Jesus this opportunity in verse 60. That's good. We feel that's a good option because clearly institutional authority and the witnesses, they're not providing hope for Jesus. Maybe he should pin his hope on his own defence. And so the chief priest asked Jesus directly to answer for the conflicting testimonies that people are bringing against him. And what does Jesus do? Look at verse 61. But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Now what's going on there, folks? Why would Jesus do that? Why would he stay silent? I mean, this is his chance, isn't it? This is his chance. He knows the charges are trumped up. He knows the motivation of those against him is one of envy and self-interest. It's, it's out of fear for losing their own positions and power, uh, you know, power and authority. I mean, even Pilate knows that, we hear in verse uh, 15.10. He knows that that is motivated by envy. Why wouldn't Jesus speak up and call it out for what it is? Because this is why the witness testimonies don't agree. It's because they're baseless, fictitious and vexatious. So why doesn't Jesus tell them so? simple reason Jesus stays silent on the first occasion is because he knows that they aren't interested in what is true. They, want to twist, they only want to twist his words to find another way to accuse him. And we can be sure that's exactly what they were on about because it's exactly what happens next. The high priest presses Jesus in his silence and asks him a direct question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And when Jesus confirms that it's true, the chief priest, what does he do? He tears his clothes, labels it blasphemy, verse 63, a crime punishable by death under Jewish law. It doesn't matter that it's true. It doesn't matter that the evidence of the last three years of Jesus backs up his claims for divine authority and power. It doesn't matter that the evidence has actually been accessible and, in fact, witnessed by the religious leaders themselves because they're never interested in the truth or the evidence. And so to deck collectively, they condemn him as worthy of death regardless. Friends, where's the hope here so far? Where's the hope in this section? You know, the only, the only thing we can say with any sort of certainty at this point, it's that it's not in institutional powers. It's not in the witness statements. 
It's not even in the evidence or the good old-fashioned truth-telling. There's no guarantee of hope in any one of those aspects or those, those areas for Jesus. They're not bad in and of themselves, but clearly they don't provide the certainty of hope that we're looking for in the case for Jesus. So where's he going to find hope in this muck? Surely his friends will rally behind him. You know, when the chips are down, your real friends stand, friends stand up, don't they? Surely this is a, maybe a more secure place to find hope. And you know what? We ought to have reasonable confidence that Jesus' friends will stick by him and stand up for him and provide some hope in this situation. Because it was earlier in this chapter, in verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 31, it was earlier when Peter gave his ironclad promise to stick with Jesus, come what may. Even if, you, even if I have to die with you, he says, I'll never disown you. That was Peter's impassioned guarantee. It's got to give Jesus some hope right now, doesn't it? And what did we hear yet in the reading? Not even 12 hours later. Peter denies, rather, denies that he even knows Jesus three times. In, in verse 71, he even invokes a curse upon himself. Get this, it's the cultural equivalent of saying something like, I swear on my children's lives, may they drop dead if I'm lying, I don't know the man. Do you feel the sense of what he's doing here? That's the kind of lying betrayal Peter pulls here. It's despicable. <laughs> There's no hope from his mates. But thankfully for Jesus, maybe, well, the Jews, they're presently under occupation and administrative control by the Roman government at this point in history. Surely, I mean, let's be honest, it's clear that there's some internal divisions, factions, you know, there's a bit of politics going on amongst the Jews. Surely the Roman government's watchful eye will provide the circuit breaker for hope and justice in this scenario. As we heard in the dramatic reading, Pilate knows this is a stitch up. He knows the chief priests are manipulating the circumstances for their own selfish end. And so after a brief conversation with Jesus, Pilate decides to do a bit of clever politicking of his own. This will restore order. He throws a decision for Jesus' release to the public opinion. In line with the custom of the feast, Pilate releases a prisoner as a show of good faith to the Jews. He decides to give them a very, very easy decision. Do the public want Pilate to release Barabbas, the murderous rioter? Well, that's a howler. No, heck no, for goodness sake. Or Jesus, the bloke who hasn't done anything wrong. This is a no-brainer. supposed to be. Pilate places his hope at this point in the sanity and the clear thinking of the mob, and that's exactly what he gets, a mob's reply. Chapter 15, verse 11, stirred up by the chief priests, the crowd demand Barabbas released. And not just Barabbas released, but Jesus crucified. Time and hope are fading fast for Jesus here. His unjust and inhumane death drawing ever closer. Religious institutions have failed him. Witnesses have done him wrong. Evidence has been ignored. Truth-telling manipulated. His friends have deserted him. Clever politics have been no help. Now even public opinion has robbed him of the last vestige, it seems. The same voices that are crying out, Hosanna in the highest at the beginning of the week, are now saying, crucify him, crucify him. His last line of defence seems to be Pilate himself. Surely the governor 
will not stand by or grant his approval to this miscarriage, this obvious miscarriage of justice. And yet, what do we read in 15.15? Pilate's a coward. Pilate's got a big yellow stripe up his back. Because although Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent to save his own skin, to protect his own position and power, Pilate caves into the pressure and we read there, chapter 15, verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd. There's his motivation. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Where is the hope in this, folks? Where is the hope? Because all we've seen so far is where hope is not. But it's in that funny kind of way that it's, like I said earlier, this is helpful. Because by process of elimination, we're getting closer to finding where real hope is. In fact, it's this strange kind of paradoxical way. This is how real hope often emerges. Real hope often emerges in the face of hopelessness. What I mean by that is that when, when one more avenue of hope has been eliminated, you're closer to finding the hope that works. I want to illustrate for this to you in a, in a sort of strange and cringy sort of way Bear with me. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the story of Aaron Ralston, the American canyoner who accidentally got his arm trapped under a 400-ish kilo boulder. There's a picture of him on the screen, I think. That's actually a picture of him with his arm trapped. He had a camera. He had the presence of mind to actually take a picture. He actually wrote a bit of an epitaph and things like that. He thought he was going to die. You can read his story in a book called Between a Rock and a, Between a, Rock and a Hard Place. I think it was made into a movie, 127 Hours. Yep. All alone, Aaron finds himself with no one aware of his location or even the fact that he'd gone on a hiking trip. Aaron was hopelessly trapped. So what did he do? We spent the first five days trying to generate hope to unpin his arm. He tried to lift the boulder. He tried to lever the boulder. He had all these ropes with canyoning. He's trying to lever it. He even tried to chip away with his little tiny pocket knife, chip away at the rock, hoping to, to remove enough rubble to be able to free his limb. And only through this process of eliminating the, the genuinely hopeless options, only through that process, only when he finally despaired in trying to free his arm, that's when a new and very different hope dawned. As he finally came to the realisation that although he could not free his arm from the rock, he could free his body from his arm. Do you see where I'm going with that? A new and very different hope. I can't free my arm from the boulder, so I'll free my body from my arm. And that's what he did. I'll spare you the details, but he managed to cut his own arm off before hiking out 11 kilometres to get help. Here's a picture of him now. He's fairly armless. That's terrible. <laughs> that is terrible. <laughs> Now, it is a strange and imperfect illustration in so many ways, but what I hope it illustrates is that genuine hope is not always found in the place that you expect it. For Aaron Ralston, it was finding hope without his arm that made the difference. For Jesus, or through this, this kangaroo court, this farcical court scene, it was a hope that transcended the physical realm that kept him going. Because Jesus' hope was not in rescue from death, but in God's perfect will through his death that sustained him. Do you see what I'm saying there? 
Jesus had resigned himself to the real and only place secure hope is to be found. He did it earlier in the chapter, Mark 14, 36, cast your eye back a couple of verses, when he prayed earnestly in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest. He said, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That's where the hope for the hopeless is. There's Jesus' hope even before all the human bastions of, of hope come crumbling down around him. Jesus' hope is in the, his Father's perfect will, God's good and perfect will, and it's not to save him from death, but God's plan beyond death that anchors his hope. That doesn't make it easy. Luke records him sweating drops of blood in the, in the garden. He's so distressed by this. He knows it will be painful on a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational level that genuinely defies description. And yet his hope is sure. What I mean is Jesus' hope is not the wishful, possible, maybe hope that we described earlier. No, no, hope in God is certain hope. Listen to how the writer of the Hebrews describes Jesus' hope despite the injustice and the brutality that he suffered. Hebrews 12.2. Interestingly, it's also where we see Jesus' hope becoming our hope as well. Hebrews 12.2 says this, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, friends, notice as you look at that verse, the word hope is not mentioned there any time specifically. But what, if that, what is that if not a message of hope? Jesus' hope was not that his father would save him from death on the cross, but what his father was doing through his death on the cross. The perfect will of God, the author and perfecter of faith, that believers who look to Jesus through his cross and find salvation, this is the sure hope and the joy that sustains Jesus through the sham trial and the crucifixion. This is the hope that we're now invited to as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we're encouraged to focus ourselves on his finished work on the cross so that we don't lose heart. In other words, so that we might have the same sure hope, not from death, but through death. Now just, it's always wordy with me, I'm sorry about that, but this is a game changer, isn't it? This is an entirely different, better hope than the worldly desire for a favourable outcome. This is entirely different. It's a new and living hope beyond death. It's an Aaron Ralston hope without an arm rather than with an arm. It looks different, it looks odd, and yet it's much better. I always do this to myself, I leave myself with so little time. There's so many Bible verses that fill out what this hope through death because of Jesus looks like. There's so many descriptions of what this means for us. I'm just going to give you two this morning. Isaiah 53, 5. I forgot to put this on the screen, I just realised. Isaiah 53, 5, Isaiah speaking some 700 years before Jesus, was looking forward to the hope of Israel, a hope of a restored Israel in a restored relationship with God despite their sinful stupidity. The hope that Isaiah speaks of comes in the form of one called a suffering servant. If you 
no, not if you've got time, you've got time, read Isaiah 53 with your family or with someone today and reflect on the enormity of what this means on a day like today. But let me give you one highlight from Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says this. Isaiah 53, speaking of this suffering servant, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Isaiah doesn't know it yet, but he's looking forward to the suffering servant, and it's Jesus. Pierced for our transgression, transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, our punishment on his shoulders so that we might have peace with God. A peace that doesn't save us from death, but beyond death. Friends, that's the hope of Good Friday. That's why it's good. It's that Jesus paid the penalty I deserve. He bore the guilt and the shame before his father that was mine to bear, that was yours to bear. And he did it so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus, the God-man, he bears the punishment, we're offered peace. Again, that is a kindness that is impossible to describe in its fullness. And what does it secure for us? It secures a certain hope, a guarantee that for all who turn to Jesus, for all that realise there is no other hope in the face of your certain death one day, because as they say in this game of life, no one's getting out alive. In the hopelessness of the fact that you will die one day, there is now not just a wishy-washy kind of really hope so hope, it is a certain hope, a different hope. It's a sure hope of sins forgiven and peace with God for eternity and it's been locked in by the cross of Christ. I'm going to pause for a moment here. It seems like a little bit of an odd space to pause but Justin's going to come, come, come up and lead us in prayer as we respond to this in the short term and the reason he's going to do that is because in a minute we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together and in fact it's there that I'll explain more about how we should be applying this personally today in the Lord's Supper. But Justin, come up and pray for us first.